Needless to say, I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle. Um, I was in Australia <coughs> last week, and I was hearing a story from one of our care homes there. And it's a very simple story, um, that when someone dies in that care home, the entire care home staff and residents line up to salute the coffin as it exits. Mm. And then they have a party. And it's quite interesting because when you talk about community and institution, that to me looks like the hallmark of a community rather than an institution. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind as I speak. And I also want to talk a bit about what Tom described as the what, whose responsibility for what. And I'm quite interested in case mix and I'm quite interested in intensity of activity. And I work in a fairly brutal environment, that of the care home. The hospice has a warm glow around it. Care homes have a slightly more brutal edge to them. Most of the deaths in, in the United Kingdom, thankfully, happen in light, later life. And it's quite interesting to actually stop for a moment and think about the nature of those deaths. And I'm grateful for Malcolm for reminding me uh, of the work of Lynn and Anderson based on uh, their analysis of Medicare patients. And they chop deaths up into fifths. And a fifth of people die after a short period of evident decline, for example, associated with a cancer. And that, of course, is where palliative care uh, and hospice movement started. A fifth of people die typically after a long-term limitation with intermittent exacerbations uh, and often a sudden death. And I suppose chronic obstructive pulmonary disease might be an example of that. Uh, a fifth <laughs> of people have uh, a sudden death completely unexpected and then two-fifths have what is quaintly described as prolonged dwindling <laughs> that's the area I'm interested in and it's hallmarked I suppose by dementia and that of course is the epidemic of our time and we've got some real attitudinal problems if I was suffering from disseminated cancer and I presented myself as an emergency to an NHS hospital, it is highly likely I would get the full works, referral to a good pain relief team, etc., etc. If I presented as a man with dementia, with a super-added delirium, wailing like a banshee, I'm very likely to be labelled in short order as a bed blocker. You can't get away from that because it's happening every day. The mortality risks of both those people may be very similar. So we've got a big problem there. Looking at the hospice, a hospice is specially crafted for looking after the care of the dying. A care home is a real potpourri. You've got people coming in for respite care, people coming in for many years, and people coming in for a short stay to die. The cost base of care homes in the UK is substantially less than any hospice and yet the range of services expected is wider. Just think for one moment that Marie Curie have two divisions, one cancer care and one care homes for the frail elderly. Let's just assume by dreadful error they've gone out on the same day collecting in Oxford Street for cancer care <laughs> and aged care and frailty. Which bucket do you think is going to fill up slightly yeah. faster? <laughs> so um, on one hand you have palliative care and successful celebration of life. On the other hand, as is continuing to happen in the UK, you have older people dying in care homes and the police coming and erecting <coughs> tape around the door and classing the area as a potential crime scene. 
I find it difficult to equate this as part of one system. So let's start looking at the rhetoric of choice and control. I don't think that applies very well to people with dementia. And certainly when it comes down to commissioning, it is very explicitly on cost. I can give you innumerable examples where we have put forward relatively modest proposals to commissioners to provide enhanced services only to find that the cheapest bid is the one that wins. I also think there's a fundamental problem in personalisation and uh, as expressed through budgets. The only way I, as a care home provider, can really provide personalised services is through specialisation. And the only way I can do specialisation is having a surety that there is going to be a sufficient stream of contract to justify that investment. Put it crudely that I will get a return on that investment of training and skilling up. It is simply not good enough for me to provide a care home, tooled up provide, to provide end-of-life care to find it's not being asked to do that or it's being done on a haphazard spot contract basis. And incidentally, I mentioned intensity earlier on. If you have a care home that has a block contract, that there's been an agreement between a commissioner and the provider, you have that resource. If you do something on a spot contract basis, not only do you have uncertainty, but often you have gaps between admissions. You can't carry those voids. You can't do it at a cost-efficient price. So the cost will actually go up. And then I think we need to understand a bit about quality and regulation. I don't believe that the regulation that we have at the moment drives up the quality of end-of-life care. I don't believe that most commissioners are at all effective in contract management in terms of quality. And I would cite the example of commissioners defaulting to using safeguarding as a lever when they're unhappy with quality. And if someone was to analyse the whole industry of uh, referral to safeguarding that never gets anywhere because at the end of the day there wasn't actually any uh, mistreatment abuse, it was just inadequately commissioned, then, then there's a bit of um, understanding to be done there. I also think that the whole funding issue in progressive dwindling is crucial. Um, one of the biggest problems I have is that following a death, no one knew the patient was dying. And there is a real medical imperative here to create some sort of understanding at what stage of life someone is in with a progressive dwindling condition such as Alzheimer's disease. At what point they transition from living with to dying from. And at that point, do they have a different entitlement of funding? My understanding at the moment is they do, but almost certainly it invariably doesn't happen. So we do need, my final points, we do need to understand the funding to get providers to really step up to the plate helpfully. We need also to eliminate duplication. I can train up my staff. I can work perfectly. I don't need lots of people to tell me how to do it. We need also to have an education of society that death does happen. Uh, it does happen in chronic illness. And actually we need to educate the police and regulators of that as well. Finally, my very final point is we need to get over Shipman. Where I find the most brutal attitudes towards care homes, I find uh, dangerously low levels of analgesia being used because doctors are fearful of prescribing drugs. 
So I think there's a rather heady mix there. 